Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan. And here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. Three quarters of parents are worried they don't spend enough time with their children. This is according to a nationwide survey of parents. The NIB State of the Nation Parenting Survey, conducted by Nielsen, canvassed 1,200 parents around the country, asking them about everything from sleep to mental health, digital devices to how much time they spend, or sorry, how much they spend on birthday parties. Parenting commentator, researcher, and educator Nathan Wallace consulted on the survey. He's with me, Morena Nathan. Morena, Catherine, how are you? I'm good. So this is a representative sample, yes? Yes, it is. But they sort of went to some measure to make sure that we got a cross-section of New Zealand society. It was a bit controlled in that way. We made sure we sort of were cross-cultural and across all the income groups. So it's a good snapshot of um, New Zealand parenting. And we've never really done that before. We've never, um, not this comprehensively. Did you consult on what the questions would be or were they given an opportunity to volunteer some of their own? Um, I did get a chance, just at the end of the process, I come on board and got to um, sort of reword some questions and put in some questions that, um, yeah, I thought would be interesting to find out from New Zealand. What were the key findings that struck you? I think that one that you mentioned first, that speaks to me, that three quarters of parents don't feel like they're spending enough time with their children. I think that's a real concern, and it, it links into the fact that so many parents are concerned about the mental health of their children and that the majority of parents feel like they don't know where to turn if there is a mental health issue, that it's got to get really serious before they get any help. Did you get any any elaboration uh, in the way the survey was structured, or was it simply, you know, do you feel like you spend enough time with your kids, yes or no? Um, Yeah, no, it was pretty much just, um, yeah, that, do you feel like you spend enough time with your kids? I broke it down more than yes and no. Um, to look at reasons behind it. Um, but, yeah. So three and four don't feel like they spend enough time with their kids, and the other issues were sleep, diet, exercise, and mental health, uh, mental illness. Yep. Was this yep. their own or their children's sleep, diet, exercise, and mental illness? Uh, their children. Okay. And then the people that were concerned about sleep were predominantly young parents, so it's probably not surprising then. Young parents tend to have younger children, and sleep tends to be an issue that you have with younger children. I mean, who's got a child under two that gets enough sleep? So these were the standout issues, and and how do you, from the work that you do, um, mm-hmm. pick pick up on them? For example, what I'm interested. Yeah, sorry. No, what, what can you do about time with your children? We know we're in an environment where financial pressures often see both parents working. Um, we have yep. more sole parent households. So for those who are feeling the stress, what can you yep. offer? Oh, yeah, that's a difficult question, isn't it? Because it probably needs a sort of cultural change, structural change. It means valuing the family unit more. You know, um, 
are we able to go back to a time when we think that being someone in the role of the at-home parent, the ahika, you know, that keeps the home fires burning, where that's seen as an important role. You know, in other cultures, that role's still much more dominant. We get all those positive outcomes from Scandinavia, and you see that that's really valued in the Scandinavian um, culture. So, I don't know, I suppose parents want a solution that says I want to go to work for 60 hours a week each, so now tell me some magical solution that makes me spend more time with my child. I think people want to hear me say, oh, it's quality over quantity. Um, and that is, to a certain extent, you can be spending time with your kids while you're watching TV and ignoring them, or you can be spending time with your kids playing Monopoly and interacting with them. So quality does matter, but you can't really escape the quantity factor. I think kids are just sort of evolved and are designed to take time. So we just need as a society, I think, to find more time. Those Scandinavian countries to which you refer, are you talking about the likes of parental leave policies? Yeah, parental leave policies are a reflection of that culture. But I just think like in the um, Dutch culture that there is words in the language for that warmth inside the home. And um, they have, um, it's just embedded into their culture. They have, um, I can't remember the name of them, but basically some type of home expert that comes around like a childcare person um, when the baby's born. But they don't just focus on things like the head circumference of the baby like we do. They focus on things like the feeling of warmth and comfort in the home. They have a word for it in their language, so it's a tangible thing to them that they talk about and measure. And, you know, that requires the presence of a parent. So, yeah, it's reflected in things like paid parental leave, but I think that's just a reflection of where the culture values that um, home role more. I think we're used to. It's just something that we've sort of moved away from in the last generation or so. And the economic pressures as well are undeniable, especially costs of, of, of housing. What, for parents, were they indicating that not having the time they wanted with their kids was impacting on them? Was it, was it um, causing anxiety for them, the parents? Yeah, well, that's what comes across. I think it's also just looking for those correlations, that they're um, concerned about not spending enough time, but also they're concerned about um, mental health. I think those two things probably link up. Children's mental health is very much dependent on how much time's been spent with them. You know, ignored children are much more vulnerable to mental health issues than children secured in a, you know, a loving, responsive relationship. New parents worried about their children reaching developmental milestones. Was this reflected in the findings as well? Yes, it was. Um, that also didn't surprise me as much because, again, young parents, developmental milestones is often a big deal when you've got a child under two. You know, always oh, not walking yet and he's 15 months old or my baby talked first. You know, if you go to an antenatal class, there's an unspoken competition over whose baby walks first, whose baby's talking first. Um, it's a rather, you know, unfounded competition because doing those things early doesn't mean they're brighter. But there is still a concern about developmental milestones. So I suppose that didn't surprise me as much. The one that surprised me, other than that not spending time with the kids, was that um, so few parents objected so the idea that Te Reo Māori could be um, compulsory in schools. I was quite uplifted by the result. I think it was only, thir- only 38% of parents objected to that. And only 16% you know, thought, thought that Te Reo Māori was a waste of time and just had no purpose whatsoever and was a dead language and we should get rid of it. Only 16%. I thought that was great. Well, that means, that, that, close to, that, means that close to 50% were in favour of that. Yeah, yeah, like 38. Oh, no, so that 38 is inclusive. Included this, okay, so yeah. so over 60% in favour. did not object to that. Yeah, I think people are becoming much more aware of the advantages 
of being bilingual and getting more away from the, um, you know, it's always been seen as kind of a racial cultural issue, I think, in New Zealand, whether we're going to speak the Māori language or not. Whereas now I think people are much more aware that if you learn any language, the huge benefits to the brain, the executive functioning aspects of the brain are really greatly enhanced by another language, no matter what language it is. And, um, yeah, if you speak... I mean, all languages ultimately in the world are divided into seven different schools. And if you speak a language in that school, you'll pick up the other languages in that school much, much easier. So by learning to speak to our Māori doesn't just enable them to have another whole way of thinking and a, you know, to make them sort of be able to communicate with everyone in the Pacific. It also opens up Asian languages because they're based you know, from the same school, based on the same vowel sounds. If we just touch back for a moment, that is a really interesting finding. Yep. If we just touch back for a moment to the developmental milestones, we're not just yep. talking about the physical growth milestones. We're, we're talking about language development and, as you say, sitting up or rolling and crawling. What, yep. what is it that, that you say um, say to parents about that? I, I know sometimes we've often talked not only about the variations around these things happening and, and particularly with language, yep. But even beyond that, um, just not rushing them through their phase of play and not trying to sort of rush them into an almost organised curriculum style learning. They're they're slightly different matters, but just reiterate why parents should relax about that. Um, I think it's about the power of self-discovery to your learning process. So as parents, we're up in our frontal cortex and we're looking at outcomes and so, like, if you give a child a jack-in-the-box, the parent's dying to get to the point where you show the kid how the jack-in-the-box works, where you push that button and the jack-in-the-box jumps out. And then the child knows how to work it. And they can copy that and push the button and the jack-in-the-box jumps out. But that whole process takes five minutes and then the toy's very boring for the child afterwards. Whereas if we had valued self-discovery and play and left that child with the um, jack-in-the-box, they could have used it for 20 different things before they finally discover that when you push this button, um, the jack-in-the-box jumps out. So not only have they explored their brain with all that creativity, but when that jack-in-the-box jumps out, they think they've discovered that. It's the power of discovery. It's very different when you self-discover something and feel like you've almost made it happen than when someone just shows you how to do something. So, yeah, I think it's about um, trusting and play and letting children discover and get the full benefits of that play, not just running to the outcomes. You know? When parents talk about developmental stages, I mean, we should be a little bit concerned about developmental stage. If my child's 15 months old and not walking, then I should seek professional help. But it's just that I shouldn't be freaking out at 13 months that they're not walking if they're doing all the other motor skill things and they're sitting up and there's no other delays. So I think it is about trusting the child and only a little bit about being educated to know when should I be concerned. Because the majority of parents are concerned far earlier than they need to be. No surprise that parents are worried about the impact of digital technology on their children and families. What did they say? No. Yeah, they've got good reason to be concerned about that. You know, the research is not looking favourable. As more and more research comes out, they're getting more and more documentation about the links between poor mental health and screen time. There's now clear links for teenagers. We can now say definitively that there is a link between screen time and anxiety and depression for teenagers. Um, So, yeah. I think parents know that it's a bit of a social experiment. But in the first generation of kids to be raised, looking at screens, you get um, you know, sensationalist articles across the media talking about how it taps into the same parts of your brain that using cocaine does. So they hear sort of snippets of that, but it's just so easy for any parent to hand the child an iPad or an iPhone 
incredibly quiet and entertained. Where are you at, and what you say? Where, where are you at, and what you say to parents about managing that? Both, um, yeah, at, at, at different ages. Own. What kind of rules do you suggest yeah. that everyone just simply has to get through? Yeah, I'm always trying to base things on research findings because I think that's what I've got that my parents didn't have. I've got Google in my lounge. I can be informed about when people did things under a, a thousand times under controlled settings, and I think that's what people want to know. And so when that's been applied to research. What that tells me is as long as my teenager has two hours a day without any screen time or device-free time, so say from 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock, everyone hands in their cell phones, that child is then not in the risk group for anxiety and depression because that child's got a reality where two hours of every day, they've got a reality where they interact with the world without a device. So it's really the kids that become surgically attached to their devices that think they can't cope without it and they have it every waking moment. They're the kids that are in the target group or in the you know, risk group for anxiety and depression. So I simply say to parents, just have two hours um, device-free time. That way you get the benefits of being in the modern world. They're connected to their devices. Um, they're not fighting progression or technology, but you're also getting the benefits of face-to-face interaction. When those kids at tea time between five and seven are flicking each other with tea towels and arguing over who's going to do the, who's setting the table and who's you know, washing and who's drying, Although that's annoying, that's facilitating all of the peptides and neurochemicals and all the normal stuff that the brain's been doing for thousands of years. So it sort of keeps it um, healthy and resilient. Whereas if you spend all the time looking at a screen and less time interacting with other human faces, that seems to put you in the risk group. So that's what I say to parents of teenagers. To show up for parents of children under two, I just say don't let them have a screen under two. It's ideal not to let children under two look at screens at all because we've got nice, clear research for that because it relates to a slightly different thing about the development of the child's vision. So it's not good to their vision to look at a screen under two. There's obviously negatives around if the child's looking at a screen, they're not interacting with the human person. And it's a human person that's really going to advance their brain and advance their cognition and help them to reach their full potential. A screen's not going to do that. I don't know if a screen's actively doing harm after the age of two, but I almost see it as putting the kid on hold. And I absolutely understand the temptation to put the kid on hold. I've got a four-year-old grandson, a two-year-old granddaughter, and they're exhausting, the amount of energy that they want, and it's constant. Um, So, yeah, I understand the temptation to put them on hold for a second and give them that. Um, But my granddaughter likes that baby shark thing. So if you know that, Catherine, you know the baby shark thing? I'm not familiar with the baby shark thing. I shall Google. Oh, well, it's just a stupid song that's on this thing that um, on the screen that a two-year-old loves. And so, yeah, I that, that, understand the temptation to just have five, two minutes peace while she watches um, the baby shark. That, so, yeah, that, 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 that energy, though, that you talk about and that intention-seeking that you talk about is the hint, isn't it? Because yeah. it hasn't come from nowhere, as you say. It's come from yeah. a long his, evolutionary history. The survey even yeah. asked about birthday parties and found what? Oh, I found that um, parents are getting really concerned about keeping up with the Joneses and that um, birthday parties have become more and more competitive. So, I mean, I was a bit, you know, um, behind on that one because I hadn't clicked up on that one. You know, I remember when I was doing parties for my kids, realising that this party bag thing had been added, that they had to all take home a bag of goodies afterwards. And I think that started out as a good idea because it was like the leftover cakes and stuff that the Dutch the dog would have eaten anyway. So I cut it all up and give it to the kids. But somewhere along the way, it turned into a goodie bag that was, you know, how good are the treats inside of that? You've got parents hiring ponies and 
carnivals and things for birthday parties. So I think, again, it ties into the parents that think they're not spending enough time with their kids. If I can't spend enough time, what I can do is give them a really amazing birthday party. 43% percent felt the most pressure to keep up with other families when it came to birthday parties, more than when they went on holiday, which is 40%, extracurricular activities, 36%, tech, 35%, or having trendy clothes, 31%. So there's where the right, yeah. com- competitive pressure gets felt. Two in five parents spent more on parties than they could afford to to keep up appearances. Oh, let's just go back to, I don't know, some disgusting fizzy drink and lollies briefly, and then everyone freak out and go home. What's advice? Yeah. To, what's what's your advice to parents who are anxious about these things? Because we can't necessarily fix it all, but can you change no. the way you think about things and the pressure you put, or the way you talk to yourself? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, self talk is a huge part of it. But I'm thinking also, I like the intention of the parent that wants to give their kid a good birthday party. So it's like. You know, I'm congratulating them for wanting to be that sort of parent that wants to make a special day. But you can do that without having to spend a whole lot of money. And the kids will actually remember the really fun, clever stuff. So I would be doing an internet search and finding what are the coolest, funnest games that, you know, no one else is doing that will have the kids rolling around in stitches laughing. Um, And that often takes very little resource, but it's just about the cleverness of the game. And that's what kids are going to remember, their experience rather than the thing. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, Nathan Wallace, our parenting commentator. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 